Please turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. <clears throat> Our text tonight is verses 16 through 20. We'll finish up the chapter, of course, tonight. <clears throat> We started this section last week, contrasting that again of wisdom, foolishness, uh, the influence of foolishness, uh, how it can really end up ruining uh, any good that has been accomplished by those that had wisdom. Then tonight, it's once again contrasting the two. And as we had gotten into a little bit of how we ought to speak in our, in our language, the way that we talk a little bit last week, that is again going to be a part of our uh, understanding tonight, the theme of this portion, is how we speak, really taming the tongue, having control, having restraint over what it is that we say, being cautious that what we say uh, doesn't sound like a fool. That we don't uh, move into the level of being a fool. Interestingly, the philosopher Plato says, Wise men speak because they have something to say. Fools because they have to have something to say. How interesting that is. Because the fool's words consume him. That's what Solomon had said previously last week. While the wise man, his words are gracious, they gain favor. There's a way in which we ought to speak. There's a way in which we ought not to speak. And these are things that we know. We don't have to have someone to really you know, tell us, you, know, you shouldn't say this, you should say this. We've heard these things growing up. We know how we ought to speak to one another and we ought, how we ought to speak to others. You know, what is it uh, growing up, how often we heard, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all, right? We've heard that. Seems like, though, when you get to be an adult, the rules change a little bit. We tend to take many liberties. Uh, when we're in adulthood, after we have uh, been taught growing up that we ought to speak nice to one another or not call each other names and then we're teaching the same thing to our children and then when it comes to our speech sometimes it's not quite what we preach to our kids we ought to have restraint over what it is that we say how we speak and not only what we say and, and speak uh, audibly but also being very cautious on, on how we respond to others in, in emails or social medias and in all the other kinds of ways that we can speak in our day. We don't want to be consumed by the things that we say. We want to be gracious. We want to be wise. And Solomon is going to bring about uh, this uh, once again in our text tonight. What we should say, how we ought to speak. And he does so by contrasting a good king and a bad king. He, he tells us a little bit about the, the foolish king that he pronounces a woe on. 
He tells us a little bit about the other king, the king of nobility that he pronounces a blessing on. And he's telling us about both of them and even the downfalls of of the foolish king. And yet he ends the section here in verse 20 with saying, In your bedchamber, do not curse a king. And so you scratch your head going, okay, you just contrasted these two kings. You just told us what this king was like and pronounced a woe on him. And then you tell us of this other good king and pronouncing a blessing on him. But then you sum it up by saying, don't curse a king. How do we reconcile that? How how do we understand exactly what he is saying here? And it really comes down to, we know how we ought to speak. We know that our words should be gracious. Our words should be seasoned with salt. We should conduct ourselves in a, in a, in a manner uh, of the gospel of Christ. We know this. But is there an appropriate time for criticism? Because he's criticizing the king. Here in this, as he contrasts the two. So is there an appropriate time to criticize the king? Well, back in chapter 8, we read these words that he who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. There's a proper time and a procedure. What is the proper time? How do we rightly criticize evil while not acting as a fool and while not cursing the king? What's the standard? How can we know which is the appropriate way uh, to go about whatever the situation may be? And that's where Solomon's really going to help us tonight to understand that there is a difference in criticism and a difference in cursing another. So if you would, let's stand together as we read the Holy Scripture in chapter 10, beginning of verse 16, reading through Verse 20 of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad, and whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility, and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through indolence the rafters sag, and through slackness the house leaks. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Furthermore, in your bedchamber do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms do not curse a rich man, for a bird of the heavens will carry the sound of the winged creature, and will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this portion of your word. Thank you for all that we have learned throughout this book, and I pray that we will indeed be taught tonight by the Spirit of God, and that this passage will be applied to our hearts, that we will strive to carry these things out, that we not only honor you when we are gathered together, but we honor you with our lips as we are outside of the congregation. Father, give us this wisdom that we are reading of here, to know how to speak, to know the proper times in which we ought to criticize and and the standard by which we should make those criticisms. 
And we pray that you would do a mighty work within our hearts and teach us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. So as always, as we've been going through this book, there are some very interesting statements that are made here. And some of them, uh, upon first glance, again, uh, cause us to scratch our heads a little bit and say, well, what is he meaning by that? Why did he say that? Why is he bringing this in when he's speaking of these two things over here? And it all does fit together. Maybe a little... uh, Loosely there, but it is working up to uh, giving a lesson to his readers and bestowing wisdom. That's what we're learning in this entire book is, is navigating through life, having true wisdom from God. And tonight is no different, of course. Tonight we are learning, indeed, how we ought to speak, right? He's went over some of those things beforehand. It's a recurring theme, just as many uh, things that we've gone over have been recurring themes throughout this book. So in his contrasting of this section, contrasting the, the wise man, the foolish man, talking about restraint, talking about everything that he's been going over throughout this book, he's repeating some of these again tonight. So in contrasting the foolish and the wise, he speaks of two particular kings. He begins by talking about a foolish king, an immature king. And he begins to describe this particular one. Now granted, beforehand, keep this in mind, beforehand he is talking about how we ought to speak. Don't speak the many words of a fool because he's saying a whole lot of nothing. Nothing with substance. The fool's words will consume him. Speak as the wise man, which is to speak graciously, gaining favor. So then he gives us this contrast here in light of everything that he said before. And he pronounces a woe upon this particular land because of their king. A woe is an oracle of doom. He says, woe to you, O land whose king is a lad, and whose princes feast in the morning. Now, some of the things that he is speaking of here give us the the understanding of the character of these people. Uh, He does use the word lad here, and it may say child in your particular translation, but this, this word really refers to a range of ages. It's not speaking of the age of the man, but rather his maturity is what's in view. His rather lack of maturity and lack of experience. The, fun, the first thing that he begins to say about this particular king as he pronounces this woe upon the land is that this, this king and his princes or you, his counselors, you could say his administration if you'd like as one uh, theologian had put it. They're all about pleasure. They're all about uh, self-fulfillment. They're self-indulgent. The king and his counselors place pleasure before anything else. This is one of the characteristics of this particular king who is being regarded as a foolish king. How do we understand that? How do we know that? They feast in the morning. They don't feast later in the evening after business is done. When they get up in the morning, the very first thing that they want to do is seeking after pleasure. They want to 
eat, drink, and be merry. First thing in the morning. This is how they want to live their life. This is what's important to them. This is what they're consumed with. They want to feast in the morning. They want to party in the morning. What is the job of a king? What is the task of a king? Well, when you go to passages like Ezekiel 34, and you're looking at this prophecy against the shepherds of Israel, the the false shepherds of Israel, it is regarded by many commentators that those that are in view in that particular passage are the last four kings of Judah before it was taken by Nebuchadnezzar. He's speaking about these kings and their lack of leadership, of abandoning the flock of the Lord, not guarding the flock, not caring for them, not watching out for them. They were all about themselves. That's very similar to the characteristics of this king. His responsibility is to lead, to lead the people of God, to lead them in righteousness, to rule with righteousness. And this king instead gets up first thing in the morning along with his, with his friends or his counselors or the other princes. And the very first thing that he wants to do is just indulge in whatever. Feast in the morning, party in the morning. This is a very self-indulgent ruler. They're pleasure-seeking people who have no restraint. They have no restraint for making their time of being merry later on in the day, later on in the evening, after they have fulfilled their responsibilities to the people. You know, one thing that you see throughout history uh, is, is where you have kings who neglect the people. And what happens when the kings neglect the people and they end up indulging in whatever they want? You end up having a revolt of some sort. Why? Because the people need to be taken care of. That's his responsibility. It's not just a title that he gets in which he's going to be the most wealthy in the country and he can do whatever he wants. It is, it is a, a task. It is a great responsibility. Because you're caring for the people in that country. You're in that land. But not this king. This is the self-indulgent king. This is a king who has no restraint. This is a king who is lazy. This is a lazy king. Through his laziness, and now, depending on verse 18, uh, there's a few different ideas as to what this is meaning, but through his indolence or his laziness, his slackness, the rafters sag, the house leaks, Now, this could literally be talking about a house in which he is so consumed with with all the pleasure seeking and the partying and everything else that he's neglecting even caring for the house or the palace that he lives in. Or it could be referring to the house, the political house of his administration. It's all crumbling. He's not taking care of anything. He's lazy. His motto for life is described for us in verse 19. This isn't Solomon saying that this is the way to to be or any of that. This is like Paul saying, as he is quoting others, let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This is Solomon really giving the readers the motto of this particular king. And what does he say? 
Prepare a meal for enjoyment and wine makes life merry and money is the answer to everything. Solomon is quoting the motto of this particular king. This isn't Solomon saying that money is the answer to everything. Otherwise, he would have undermined most of everything that he said previously here. No, this is what this king is about. He's about money. He's about um, having a a life uh, of enjoyment. And there's a time for enjoyment. Solomon has already talked about that. Uh, Wine makes life merry. Solomon's already talked about that, enjoying the blessings of God. There's nothing wrong with that. But as he says of the good king, which we'll talk about next, when this, the good king or the blessed king, the king of nobility, when he, when he eats at the appropriate time, he does so for strength and not for drunkenness, which implies that the other king is indeed making himself merry and has the excessive drinking leading to drunkenness. His motto for life, prepare a meal, get the wine ready, and money's the answer to everything. You know, the scriptures tell us, we can can glean a few other things here because the scriptures tell us that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And so if this king is saying things like, money's the answer to everything, then his love for money is very evident. And so what then does a foolish king who has a lot of money do? Well, we could throw out a number of ideas of what he is doing, what other things that he would like to do or or can do. The scripture tells us in Jeremiah 48.10, Cursed be the one who does the Lord's work negligently, And cursed be the one who restrains his sword from blood. Now the latter part of that is speaking of a warrior in battle who who doesn't uh, use his sword against the enemy for whatever reason. The enemy will eventually overtake him. But cursed be the one who does the Lord's work negligently. The king is to do the Lord's work in ruling the people with righteousness. That's the task of the king. That's the responsibility of the king. When you read of, of Christ himself or the, the prophecy of Christ, uh, you, you come to understand at least more of what a king should be doing, how a king should rule, because Christ is the example. In Isaiah chapter 11, when you have the prophecy of Christ here in this chapter, it says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what he, his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt around his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. So this is the prophecy of Christ, the great king who rules in righteousness, who, who decides among the poor fairly. This is the example that, uh, that the 
the kings are to look to. What is this king like? What's the ultimate king like? Well, that's how we need to be. That's how we need to rule because that's ruling righteously. But the foolish king takes no thought. The foolish king does what's right in his own eyes. The foolish king uh, has no desire when it comes to the law of God or the standard of God. You know, when you look in the the books of the kings in the Chronicles and you see uh, uh, the listing of all these kings that came in Israel and came in Judah, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. They did good in the sight of the Lord. But what was the things that set them apart? What, what were the characteristics of each of the kings that set them apart from being an evil king or a foolish king or a good king? It was in regards to their responsibility to the law of God and ruling righteously. So because this particular king is not ruling righteously, he is being lazy, he's self-indulgent, he's pleasure-seeking, he's neglecting the work of the Lord This is why that Solomon then would be critical of this kind of a king. The standard by which he is criticizing the king is the standard of God's word. Here's what you should be doing, but here's what you are doing. That's what the prophets did all through the Old Testament. When the prophets are standing before the people and they're, they're preaching against the people or they're preaching against the king, what's the standard by which they are making all these criticisms? All these rebukes, what is it? It's the law of God. That's the standard. Now, he contrasts the foolish king with the king of nobility. He says, blessed are you, O land whose king is of nobility and whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. This particular land, contrasting with this particular king, this, this land is blessed. Why? Because it's a king of nobility. And as we discussed beforehand, uh, having someone of nobility would imply that they were prepared for the task because they've been educated. They've been educated to understand how they ought to rule, how they ought to uh, lead the people all of that. And so this particular land doesn't have an immature child for a king. Rather, they have a king of nobility who has been trained and educated to know how they ought to rule. And this particular king has self-restraint in the sense that he conducts everything that he should throughout the day, his responsibilities, fulfilling his responsibilities to the people. And then in the evening, he and his counselors get together His princes get together and they eat at the appropriate time. And they do so for strength and not for drunkenness. So this king is doing what Solomon has been instructing elsewhere. To eat, to drink, to be merry, right? He's told us that. But not in the way in which the foolish king is conducting himself. There's a way in which we can enjoy the blessings of God. This is what this king is doing. He's enjoying the blessings that God has given. And he takes of the wine and he takes of the food and he does so with thanksgiving unto the Lord. Recognizing that it is indeed a blessing. This is a king of spiritual maturity. This isn't, um, this isn't a king who acts like a child and who does what Solomon has previously said, who 
has his temper to flare at anything. This is a king who has restraint, who has control over himself, who is able to take of the things that God has given for the, for the pleasure of his people and to do so with thanks and not neglecting the work of the Lord. He's ruling wisely. And that's why the land is blessed, because they have a wise ruler. What makes him wise? But if we're looking at everything that Solomon's been saying, everything that Solomon's been pointing us to, you look at the scripture as a whole, what is it that sets a wise person from the foolish? But their adherence to the word of God. This king is a king of nobility, and the land is blessed to have him because he is ruling according to the standard of God's word. And that causes the land to flourish. It causes the people to flourish, the country to flourish, when you have a king who is willing to rule according to the standard of God's word. A king who has restraint, who has control. You know, as we were going through Titus, Titus had addressed not only, uh, or Paul had addressed not only Titus, he addressed the older men, the younger men, older women, younger women, even the slaves. And the very same thing that he said to all of them, which was equal across the board, was have self-control. He encouraged all of them, have self-control. That's what needs to be within a king. That's one of the characteristics of of what makes a king a good king is having self-control, having restraint, a king who is spiritually mature, he fulfills his calling, he shepherds the people according to the responsibility that God has given. He enjoys the blessings that God has given at the proper time, at the appointed time, and because of that, The land is blessed. So, you have two kings. One is receiving blessing, or the land itself is receiving blessing because they have him. The other land is is cursed because of their particular king, and you see the characteristics of that king, and there's criticisms there. He is rightly criticizing this king for his lack of leadership in his lack of adherence to the word of God. But then Solomon says this, after he just does this. Then he says in verse 20, Furthermore, in your bedchamber do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms do not curse a rich man, for a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. Now, how can you offer criticisms and not curse the king? That's some of the question there. You know, something that that happens here in America is since we have freedom of speech, at least right now, then sometimes we think that that equals unrestrained freedom of speech. As if we, since we have the right to, that it's right for us to do it. 
And that's not the case, especially for the people of God, who the scriptures have much to say about the tongue. I was reading one man, and he was talking about the book of Proverbs, that every chapter of the book of Proverbs has something to say about how we talk. James has something to say about how we talk. Jesus had much to say about how we talk. Cursing the king, what would that look like? Well, it could look like something like Jesus said in Matthew 5, which really seems not so severe uh, when, we, when we first read it. But in Matthew 5, in the Lord's Sermon on the Mount, he says in verse 21, he starts out in verse 21, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now, looking at that, that seems like, that's awful harsh. If I say you good for nothing, I'm guilty enough to go to the Supreme Courts. Or if I say you fool to somebody else, then I'm guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Why? Why does he say that? Because it's in connection with what he just said about giving the sixth commandment. You heard it said that you shall not commit murder, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother... So, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? So that when we are angry at another, because here's the thing, Solomon is saying not to curse the king, but should we even be cursing anybody? It's not just about the king, it's about anybody. Because that's where Jesus is using that. He's not saying, don't say you good for nothing to the king. He's speaking across the board. Why? Because when you say things to slander others in, in the way that Jesus is speaking of that uh, there, and as well as Solomon here, it's coming out of a heart of hate. It may be momentary. Sometimes we can get so angry at even people that we know that we end up saying something that we, we don't mean. We end up feeling remorse later. But what happened in those moments? What kind of emotion ran through us to make us say that in the moment? Great anger. And when we say it about others, especially those that we don't like, it's just demonstrating the hatred that we really have for them. And so what are we talking about then when it comes to cursing? We're talking about slandering. We're talking about name calling. We're talking about, uh, like Jesus says also in Matthew chapter 15, After he speaks of the parable, Peter comes to him and asks him to explain the parable. So Jesus begins in verse 16. Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, Thefts, false witness, slanders. 
These are the things which defile the man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. It's interesting that in this list of very horrible sins, what we would consider to be horrible sins, one of the things that he puts in there is not only the evil thoughts and the murders and the adulteries and the fornications and the thefts and the bearing the false witness, but slandering. Perhaps that does truly show uh, how our Lord feels about uh, this particular sin, because it is sin, because it's stemming from a heart of anger or hatred uh, when we speak evil of others. Now, in reference to speaking evil of kings, you have even the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter uh, 23, in Acts 23, He's giving his defense before the council. Verse 1, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest, Ananias, commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystander said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. And that is a passage of scripture that comes from Exodus chapter 22. So you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. And Paul emphasized that even in his defense against the council that was going to condemn him. And so as Solomon is speaking to his readers and saying to them, don't curse the king, this is what he has in mind. It's one thing to rightly criticize an administration or a governor or anybody in a political office. It's right to criticize when they are doing the very things that are against the word of God. Because there has to be someone, as, as he says in chapter 8, Where the king does what he pleases, who's the one who's going to say to him, what are you doing? Who are the ones who stand stand up and say, oh, king, what are you doing? But the people of God who have the standard of what is right and good and how one ought to uh, rule righteously. So there is the criteria, there's the standard there in which we rightly criticize the culture, we criticize the administration, regardless of what president it is, or what governor it is, or what mayor, or senator, congressman, whenever they are violating the very things that God says, this is right, this is the way you ought to do it, this is what is pleasing, this is what I command of you, and they do the opposite, then rightly do we criticize King, you are not doing what God says that you ought to be doing. You are a minister of God. You are called a deacon of God. And the standard by which you rule or that you rule over the city or the state or whatever is according to the word of God. But what we don't do, as Solomon is saying here, as Paul reiterates, as Jesus speaks, is we don't curse the person you're good for nothing you are a fool 
or some of the things that we say, we don't really say stuff like that. We, we say other things that are probably more vile, more hurtful. That's what we do. You know, it's very interesting that Solomon makes this statement, not only um, not to curse the king, but don't even do it in your bedchamber. Even when you're alone, or you think that you're alone. Why? Because even then, it's not any better just because you're saying it in private, as if to say it in private all of a sudden makes it okay to say. Again, when we curse, when we speak evil of another in this kind of a way, it is sinful. It's sinful whether we're by ourselves or we're saying it to the person. Even in your bedchamber, don't curse the king. Don't curse the rich man. It's very interesting that he says, For a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. How many times have we ever said, A little birdie told me? A little birdie told me this. And then, as one theologian had brought about, or had brought up in his commentary, isn't it so. We don't want to say it's a coincidence because it's not. Nothing is by coincidence. But isn't it very interesting that Twitter has the logo of a bird? And how much trouble do people get in on Twitter or on any social media? A little birdie told me, no, it was you doing this. You just told everybody. How many people have gotten in trouble over that? Even celebrities. Because of something that they typed out. And that little birdie carried the message. You've got to be careful. Not only what we say to people. Not only what we say in private. But we've got to be careful what we allow our fingers to do as well. When it comes to being behind a keyboard. We've got to be cautious. Even in typing it out, don't curse the king. Now, in this particular situation, it could be because of, well, the king finds out, then you're going to be in some trouble. But I think more so than that, just generally speaking across the board, we don't do it because it's displeasing to God. Out of fear to the king, yeah, we could see that. But out of fear of bringing reproach upon Christ, that's an even greater reason to have restraint. So we don't speak evil. We don't curse the king. We don't type out things. We try to maintain our composure, maintain our control over ourselves, which we can do. We just don't want to do it, especially when we're in the moment. We want to just... Let it go, as we've been talking about even last week, the same kind of scenario. We just want to let it out, let it go, and say whatever it is that we want to say, knowing that the words in which we speak can can hurt people much worse than if we physically hurt them. You know, the thing is, is you know as well as I do, that if you say something that you shouldn't have said to someone, especially someone that you end up caring about, that doesn't go away. Your guilt for what you said often remains, or if you're on the receiving end, 
words can really cut and hurt. But by using our words wisely, perhaps we can gain favor in areas where maybe normally we wouldn't. That's why Paul says to uh, conduct ourselves with wisdom towards outsiders. Who's he talking about? He's talking about those outside the church. Conduct yourself with wisdom for those that are outside the church, who are the unbelieving, the unregenerate. And as Solomon has said here earlier in chapter 10, that the words of the wise men are gracious. They gain favor. As he went in in chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, talking about various scenarios, someone who speaks graciously can gain favor even with an unruly king. A foolish king. Solomon has already spoken of that. One writer said this, Sometimes God's people change the world, as Esther and Mordecai did. And if you go, of course, uh, to Esther and you're, you're familiar with that, Esther, by being gracious as she was, went before the king and she received uh, uh, the acceptance of the king. Even when it was a danger to go before the king unless you were summoned. But her and her uncle, having wisdom, was able to get before the king and to, of course, let him know what was being done by Haman. So this particular gentleman is saying, sometimes God's people change the world as Esther and Mordecai did with slow, careful, prayerful actions and speech, seasoned with salt. What if Christians were known for our quietness rather than our venomous attacks, or for our kindness, rather than our inflammatory tempers. What if we were known that way? Well, we can be known that way. You can be wise as serpents and harmless as doves because the Spirit of God who dwells within you enables us to carry out the things that God commands. Does this mean that we just keep quiet about anything? No, because we understand very clearly that we are to rightly criticize. And we are to rightly say, you being in favor of this abortion is against God's word. You being in favor of the LGBT stuff is against God's word. You are to rule righteously, for you are not anyone's deacon, but you're God's deacon. That is the word that is used in Romans 13. They are ministers of God. And they are to rule wisely, righteously. And they are accountable to him. So we stand and we say, you're accountable to the great king. And it is his law that should be your criteria. His standard, which is your criteria for how you govern. By doing right among the people. By loving justice doing justice, acting with fairness. All of that that we read. So, when it comes to your criticisms of either of the people, your criticisms of government officials, of the political party that's in power, what is the standard by which you make your criticisms? Do you even have a standard or is it just allowing your, your lips to say whatever it is that you desire because you're angry or upset? Or do you rightly think through the issue and say, 
we speak against this person, this government official, because God's word says this. And that's what they're not doing. That needs to be the standard. So that when people come to you and they say, you know, all you guys ever do is just criticize and name call and this, that, and the other. And we say, whoa, 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 we don't name call. We are criticizing rightly because the only standard for right and wrong, good and evil, the only objective standard is God's word. And that's the very thing that they're rejecting. And so that is the standard by which we are making our criticisms. By what standard do you criticize me? And that begins the conversation. And that's where we need to to get knowing the word of God, knowing what God expects so that we can make sound judgments. Not just because we don't like someone, but we can make a sound judgment against evil. And we need to pray. We really need to pray uh, that the Lord will help us to control our tongues. That is... Uh, a great temptation for any one of us. How well do we do it? Only you know the answer to that. I wouldn't want to tell you from my, my own experience. But we need to control our tongues and we need to have restraint. Because as we went through Titus, the people of God, one of the characteristics of the people of God is that they have restraint. They have control over themselves do you have control over yourself can you rightly think through something and make the judgment i want to do what god says i should do what is most honoring to christ in this particular moment rather than making myself look foolish because we need to think like that it's easy to do the other but we need to think like this Lord, let me not be foolish in the way that I speak or the way that I react. Help me to be a faithful servant and a faithful ambassador for Christ that through my actions and my words that I may show a glimpse of the goodness of our Lord to even these unbelieving. Help me to carry that out. Every one of us need to pray that. Help me to carry out what you command of me. So, do we criticize the government? Yes. Should we criticize the government? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. But do so by the standard of God's word. Point out the evils according to God's word. And perhaps that may make an opportunity. Maybe having the proper time and procedure, using wisdom to know that, that we may be able to take the conversation further in bringing in the gospel. But we know what we should be doing. We know what we have been doing. One day we'll do it right. And that, again, is part of the great hope that we have in our Lord. One day, O Lord, you will take this from me and you will give me lips that only speak your praises. And that's the day that we look forward to, right? Well, we will stop there and we will continue in chapter 11 uh, next week. If you would, please stand with me.
And we will be dismissed in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you once again for your word. As we read through your word and we come to understand what you tell us, sometimes it's very difficult. Sometimes it's things that we really don't want to hear. But these are things that, as one brother said, these are things that we need to hear. Because we need to know what it is that's pleasing to you and not pleasing to ourselves. We don't want to be pleasure-seeking. We don't want to be self-indulgent or selfish. We want to do the things that are pleasing to you. At times we, we think we've done enough and we keep one area of our life to ourselves. but, oh Lord, you are the Lord over every part of our life. So help us. Help us to say the right thing. Help us, Father, to use the wisdom that we find within the scripture that our words would be gracious, that perhaps being received even by the unregenerate, that we may gain favor and be able to influence. Uh, Help us to study your word. To know what it is that you say when it comes to what is good and right, according to your law, your standard, everything that we learn within the totality of your word. Help us to know that, that we may make sound judgments. Father, be with each one of us here and help us, Father, every day to carry these things out. We love you. We give you all the praise and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, amen. Thank you for your attention.